Welcome to the fourth episode of Redefine Politics. I'm your host, Benny. Joining me today is a United States Senator from the great state of Colorado, Hank Brown. Before his time in the Senate, he served as a Vietnam War veteran, a Colorado State Senator, and also a U.S. Representative. In the Senate, he served on the Foreign Relations, Judiciary, and Oversight Committee, and served as the president of three universities after his time in the Senate. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I do. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit about who you are and where you're from and what your hometown is like? My name's Hank Brown. I'm from Colorado originally, but I did go to high school not too far from you in um, Menlo Atherton, yeah. Park. <laughs> and we played uh, San Jose in sports a great deal. I went to uh, University of Colorado for undergraduate and graduate school, and then after four years in the Navy, went to law school at CU. And uh, later on, I uh, got a master's in uh, tax at uh, LLM at uh, George Washington University. Uh, my background includes working 11 years for uh, Monterey, Colorado, the world's largest cattle feeder and a meat packer at the time, and serving in the Colorado State Senate and uh, the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. I've also served as president of uh, three universities, president of a large foundation. Cool. You served as the president of so many universities. Just wow. Great deal of fun. I also read that you spent a lot of time working. So what was your first job and what was your experience doing that? Uh, I suppose the first job I had really involved uh, shoveling snow, uh, which obviously Colorado has lots of and and, uh, would not be a normal case in San Jose. But uh, at 11, I got a job as a locker boy working at a city park swimming locker. And uh, I worked as a gardener in California where I worked 40 hours a week while I was in high school as a gardener during the day and as a a dishwasher and a busboy in a local restaurant in Menlo Park. In college, I worked uh, 30 to 40 hours a week. Wow. uh, Mostly in restaurants. And uh, in law school, I worked uh, 60 hours a week in three different jobs to pay for uh, law school. I worked for Arthur Anderson in their tax department at their Denver office and uh, worked as a janitor in a building where I uh, lived and sold advertising uh, on the side for a local newspaper. In addition, I was still in the Navy Reserves while I was in law school, so I did that on a a weekend a month. Wow, very cool. You went to high school at Menlo Atherton, correct? That's right. My mother and father were divorced. Uh, my mother went to law school in Colorado and then uh, got a job in California. And um, so we moved out to California when I was in high school. I know that California and like the Bay Area right now is very different than when you were here. What was Menlo Atherton like? You know, it's a great question because it, it really influenced a lot of the legislation that I got passed. You had the uh, Bayshore Highway and uh, uh, and uh, El Camino were, were usable in those days. <laughs> so traffic wasn't near as bad uh, as it is now. Uh, and there was still a lot of uh, open space on the peninsula. And you're right, uh, there were orchards and uh, uh, farms and so on in the San Jose area. Uh, obviously, a lot of that has all been filled in on the peninsula. And it influenced me because uh, 
it was obvious to anybody that Peninsula was going to fill in at the time, and yet uh, they didn't have the foresight to buy up uh, land and open space, uh, which would preserve some of the delightful natures of the peninsula. Uh, so when I was in the state senate in Colorado, I uh, got a bill passed called the Colorado Conservation Trust Fund that uh, came up with money to buy open space in Colorado. And uh, we benefited a great deal by uh, California's unfortunate experience, in my mind. While I was in Congress, I was a prime sponsor and author of the Oregon Trail and uh, the Santa Fe Trail, and then uh, was the author of the American Trails Act, which, as you know, has a, a trail system that comes from it starts in California and goes east to the East Coast. It all came from that experience in California of seeing what happened when people didn't set aside open space as they grew. I also read that you were a veteran at Vietnam. I uh, had gone to graduate school on a National Defense Scholarship and uh, was bored to tears and joined the Navy. And then when I got in the Navy, I extended to go to flight school and... Uh, then when I was uh, set to go to law school, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson asked for volunteers for Vietnam. So I volunteered for Vietnam and I served in Da Nang in the I-Corps area. There were no planes there, so I, I volunteered to, with the Army to uh, fly in the little L-19s as a forward air controller. So I did my ground duty with uh, the Navy in Da Nang and then I flew uh, the I-Corps area as a forward air controller with the Army. What was Vietnam like? You know, it, I, it, it really shaped a, a lot of American uh, thinking and politics. Uh, I, I think anytime you experience a no-win war or a mm-hmm. war you lose, it impacts people. But um, what had happened was the North Vietnamese invaded the South and uh, uh, that first year in 65 when I was there the North Vietnamese murdered uh, 40,000 local officials in South Vietnam and uh, it literally set the stage for the future years because nobody wanted to run for office in South Vietnam uh, after that and become a target Uh, eventually obviously uh, with a commitment to a no-win strategy um, uh, America got tired of, of the war and uh, left, but uh, it, it, it's heartening to see uh, uh, Vietnam uh, privatize of its economy. Uh, it's amazing, but it was uh, it was frustrating from a service point of view because um, McNamara had uh, the Secretary of Defense had, had mandated we had to have. Uh, we had to get approval of both the Army Command for the core area and uh, the U.S. Military Command to respond to any strikes. So we couldn't call in an airstrike uh, or naval gunfire until they fired on us. And then only then after we got approval. Quickest I ever could get approval was an hour. Uh, one time it took a full 24 hours to get approvals or responding uh, the UCF gun gunfire. Um, so it was uh, it, 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 the, the restrictions on the U.S. activity there were bizarre. Yeah, twenty-four hours—that's really slow, especially in a war zone. Yeah, yeah. 
and that was after they fired on you. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a funny game that we played with uh, with the North Vietnamese soldiers because uh, they knew we couldn't return fire until they fired on us. You had to circle lower and lower uh, to get them to fire on you, and uh, they they wait until you were quite low uh, to shoot at you. I took AP US history this past school year and there was lots of backlash against the Vietnam War and also read that people who fought in the war like you there was lots of backlash so did you experience that after you came back after the war Well yeah, it was uh, the war was particularly unpopular on uh, on US campuses and uh, so uh, yeah you had yet faculty who uh, Uh, disapproved of you and told you so and and uh, I even had someone threaten to take away my scholarship uh, to law school when uh, uh, I did a seminar on campus uh, about Vietnam what I did wasn't particularly political it was simply giving people facts about uh, Vietnam Uh, but they uh, threatened to take away my scholarship uh, if I if I went ahead with it, which I did <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it was a, and, and it was uh, I think interesting because uh, the fact that South Vietnam was being invaded by the North really was not common knowledge at the time. Uh, um, people look. The, the press primarily led the scenario that it was a local uprising against the South Vietnamese government, which wasn't perfect by any means, but uh, uh, it, most people didn't realize it was an invasion of the South by the North. I think that period was the contentious, chaotic period. It was, and it, it influenced uh, me. I, I, the time I spent in the House and the Senate, um, I voted against uh, committing U.S. troops abroad unless we had a clear mission and a commitment to fulfill it. And uh, so I voted against Reagan's sending troops to Lebanon, and I voted against, uh, uh, I think I was the only one in the House or Senate that spoke out against uh, Clinton sending uh, 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 troops into uh, uh, Somalia without the protection of the uh, uh, of the uh, uh, proper equipment and so on. Uh, it was uh, it was amazing to me how the U.S. continues to be willing to commit troops uh, where they don't uh, have a commitment to win. Speaking of politics, I wanted to know a little bit more about how you entered politics and what brought you to it. I know that you served in the Colorado State Senate first, so how did you want to get involved? Was it your service in the military or something else? You know, I'd always uh, had uh, concerns about uh, uh, political matters. When I was working for Monfort, uh, uh, there was an opening in the State Senate and uh, uh, in the area that I was located in, and uh, I, I ran and worked full time and served in the Senate full time. Wow. Uh, just served one term because uh, I, I found I was uh, <laughs> I was sleeping two hours a, uh, a night, and uh, it didn't quite work. But I loved being in the state Senate 
it was a great experience uh, and very creative uh, it easy to get things passed if you knew what you were you were doing and had done your research and uh, and then uh, while I didn't run again for the state senate uh, a few years later and there was an opening in the U.S. House of Representatives and I ran for that and was lucky enough to get elected to the House. You're known by your colleagues that you're one of the most diligent person in both the House and the Senate. So do you want to talk a little bit about your experience and why research and being prepared about everything that you are involved in, why that matters so much to you? You know, in, in a legislative body, if you, it, it's easy to, uh, to uh, get things done if, if uh, you build some credibility with people. Um, in the legislature, and I'm sure it's true in California as well as Colorado, if you read the bills, uh, just simply read the bills, you're in the top 10%. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not difficult to, to get a, a decent reputation for for being informed. That doesn't mean people agree with you, but but it does mean they, they, uh, they respect uh, your, your background and scholarship in it. Um, and I found it a, a huge advantage in, uh, in Congress uh, uh, to, to be up on it. And I suppose it's one of the reasons I, I had uh, a lot of luck in getting amendments passed on the floor in committee. During your time in Washington, what was your most memorable experience or what was something that you're most proud of? having served in Congress for 16 years? You know, I think more than anything, uh, it was uh, bringing Central Europe into NATO. Um, I was shocked when I was in the Senate to find that uh, the administration opposed allowing um, uh, Central Europe uh, uh, to enter into NATO. Uh, Obviously, the Eastern European countries or Central European countries, uh, they used to use both labels um, wanted into NATO so Poland and the Czech Republic uh, and Hungary were the first ones that uh, we dealt with and uh, the administration was staunchly opposed to them coming in uh, the Clinton administration felt like it was better that we would have better relations with Russia if uh, if Russia we recognized that Russia uh, had a sphere of influence over Central Europe. Uh, my own feeling was the opposite. Uh, my own feeling was that uh, um, we have better relations if, uh, if the potential of Russia taking over Central Europe was, was off the table. Uh, it, it, I mean, in a practical form to occupy them again. Um, and uh, so I, we drafted a bill in my office that changed U.S. foreign policy. It was a, it was kind of an unusual thing to do because, as you know, um, the foreign policy is primarily set by the administration. Mm-hmm. Um, but we uh, drafted a bill. We put into it a number of things. One was a, a policy declaration that it was uh, our, our policy in the United States to include those countries in NATO and work towards their. Uh, Inclusion into a. We then developed the language that developed training uh, for those countries uh, with the U.S. and uh, uh, developed uh, interaction and assistance programs. And uh, I'd introduced the bill, and uh, the administration 
got the uh, the committee on the foreign relations that I was on uh, to not hold hearings, which is obviously your first step in terms of getting a bill passed. <laughs> and uh, so I uh, I got uh, a number of Democrats to help me, and uh, I offered it as an amendment on the floor of the U.S. House or of the, of the U.S. Senate. And uh, it passed on a close vote. And uh, uh, then that uh, we got to get killed in the House when the administration lobbied against it. Uh, so uh, I offered it a second time, and it passed the House. And by then, we'd lobbied the House, or passed the Senate. And, uh, and uh, the House of Representatives passed it went to conference committee to work out the differences and the administration uh, called a secret, a closed session of the conference committee and uh, it told them that they thought Poland was uh, financing terrorism. Uh, uh, They used that to kill the pill, uh, which turns out to be false, uh, uh, highly inaccurate. Uh, So I got it passed a third time in the U.S. Senate and uh, passed again in the House. We went to conference, and this time they called the conference committee in one of the back rooms. Um, So so people interested in the bill couldn't, uh, would have a difficult time uh, attending. And uh, so I got the uh, Polish-American Society and the Hungarian-American Society and the uh, uh, the Czech-American Society all to lobby on behalf of the bill. And they each got uh, survivors of the Holocaust from World War II to come lobby. So as the conference went towards the conference, these elderly people who had survived the Holocaust from all of these countries would reach out and and shake hands with the uh, with the people who are members of the conference committee and, and uh, tell them their story about being in, in the prison camps and, uh, and avoiding being killed. And uh, <laughs> half the people got the conference committee had tears in their eyes from hearing oh stories. And uh, the pleadings had been it passed. And then we passed that bill again. Uh, two more billion. We passed that year, and then we did an updated version of it the next year, and another version of it the year after. And uh, it it was the key towards getting uh, all those countries into NATO. And I think the fact that the Russians haven't retaken Central Europe uh, is, I think, it made a major contribution towards uh, towards peace in Europe. Yeah, definitely. Was that how you how you got your sword from the Polish president? It was. It was. I, I went to uh, prison in the West uh, at, at, uh, had come to America to uh, uh, speak to the Polish-American Society in Buffalo, New York, and uh, they were kind enough to, to award me a sword and so on. And uh, they were, uh, obviously, the Poles, with their history, you would imagine, would be felt the most intense intensity about being in NATO. And uh, so they were very kind. I think encouraging the people who survived the Holocaust to lobby. It's super smart. It, it really is what turned the tide uh, because the, the committee uh, 
from the Senate had been stacked against against the bill. Even though I passed the bill in the Senate three times, they 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 uh, had had kind of stacked the uh, uh, the conference committee with people who uh, had voted against the bill. And but when the Holocaust survivors. Uh, pleaded with him to pass it. It just, uh, uh, it, it had an emotional impact that uh, changed all the votes. I don't think people understood the issue. Uh, I mean, I think people on both sides were had good intentions. It's just, uh, uh, I don't think the opponents realized that, uh, that by being in NATO, it would discourage Russia from taking over those countries. Uh, and uh, ultimately uh, avoid a, a confrontation between us and Russia. Um, and I think once they understood that point, uh, it became, you know, now you, you have trouble finding anybody who, who doesn't think they ought to be in NATO. Speaking about NATO, I think there's been recent talks about the purpose of NATO since NATO was originally created for another purpose, and right now NATO's been involved in lots of international efforts that are kind of different. So what is your take on responsibilities of NATO right now in the 21st century? You know, it, it, it has changed, you're right. I think mostly since uh, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, and uh, Russia's movement, uh, towards uh, working with us, uh, at least uh, not being as hostile as they were during the Cold War. Uh, but I think it still serves a vital purpose. And the reality is that Russia is uh, a very aggressive country and uh, would not pass up an opportunity to expand their borders uh, as witnessed by what they're doing with the Ukraine. And the reality is that NATO is so strong now with those additional Central European countries that it, uh, while they may feel free to, to uh, make incursions into the Ukraine, I don't think uh, they'd be free to, uh, to make incursions into uh, Poland or, or the other countries in Central Europe. I think the Europeans always have been, um, in foreign policy, have been much less idealistic than we have. Uh, they always, almost all of them always thought of foreign policy as revolving around their self-interest. Yeah, while the U.S. always says uh, there's been a strong element of idealism and willingness and interest in defending democracy. Um, not from a selfish point of view. Uh, doesn't mean we don't have those other other traits. We do, but but the, there's a significant difference in the way you, the U.S. and European countries uh, view foreign policy, and uh, that's not surprising. It's kind of always been there. Uh, so it's natural that uh, uh, that the, the Europeans would be a little more provincial as they they look at international affairs and. Uh, uh, and that doesn't surprise me, and I don't think it'll change. You served on the Foreign Relations Committee in the United States Senate, but also the Judiciary and the Oversight, and in the House you served in the House Ways and Means Committee and also the Ethics Committee. They were one of the most sought-after ones, so can you talk a little bit about how you got all these amazing committee assignments and what the process for getting those are? I run a, an international trade company when I was with Montford for those years, and so I knew a fair amount about international trade and uh, have headed uh, uh, an export operation um, as well. Uh, 
it, we exported a great deal product to, to the Far East as well as the Middle East and Europe. Um, so I had an interest in those committees. And then, of course, having worked for Arthur Anderson in their tax department while I was in law school, gave me an interest particularly in the, uh, uh, in the tax issues. So Ways and Means was a natural interest for me. Uh, it was a challenge to get on because uh, I, I think those positions are awarded uh, on factors other than just your background and the issues they deal with. Uh, obviously, they're, because they're desirable, uh, uh, the big states kind of divide them up. And at that point, Colorado was not a big state. Um, so I, it was my first choice. The first term I was there, and the second term, and the third term. Uh, finally, the fourth term that I was elected, uh, I got on the committee. But I, in the meantime, I, uh, at night, I had uh, gone to law school and gotten a master's in tax uh, from George Washington. I thought that would help uh, me get on the committee. And uh, after that, I uh, took the CPA exam. And, became a CPA as well by doing that at night. Both activities kind of kept me busy at night, which was better than, uh, than going to the receptions and the nightlife in Washington. And I think being a CPA and an attorney and uh, having a master's in tax uh, were, were all helpful in getting on the committee. What about the committee process? You know, both parties are fairly similar. Um, and it's modified over the years, but not much. Basically, um, uh, the members of Congress are represented on a committee on committees, uh, and each party picks their own. Um, so uh, the, uh, the majority party will uh, uh, allocate so many seats on each committee to the minority party. Um, the Democrats have, have long taken an extraordinarily large share of the key committees uh, in, in, I think the first year I was there, we had 47% of the, the Congress, uh, something in that range. We got like 20, uh, 29% of the Rules Committee and 30% or 31% of the Ways and Means Committee. So mm-hmm. they're, they're, they, uh, they take uh, an unusual large percentage. The Republicans, when they took over, weren't quite as bad, but they were still was still not proportional in the House. And uh, so it was a challenge to get on, but the way the party selected uh, is uh, the big states have a representative on uh, the committee and committees automatically. So New York and California would all have, always have someone on. And then the smaller committees, the smaller states get together and uh, the states with one member of Congress elect somebody to represent them and the states with two members of Congress elect somebody to represent them and three members and so on. Um, usually if you have five members of Congress, you have uh, automatically have a, a delegate on that committee, but the committee then allocates the spots and uh, it's pretty tough politics. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the thing you've seen this last year where the the majority eliminated a Republican from a committee is unusual. Uh, normally, uh, uh, the makeup of the committees or the people who get assigned the committees is decided by their own political party. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. I did not know that. 
said it's a little different and uh, it, the, well they have a committee on committees it's basically the leadership that uh, that kind of allocates those spots and uh, they in the Senate they go much more by seniority than in the House and the fact that you were able to you know, get on the foreign relations judiciary and oversight I, yeah I love the foreign relations committee I was fascinated with it it's not a particularly uh, uh, sought after committee uh, as much as some of the others uh, but, uh, but I was fascinated with it and I think uh, all the time I spent in the Navy uh, I think I'd flown uh, before I went to Vietnam I was in a VR squadron and we flew to uh, over 50 different countries uh, in the world and so I always had an interest in it and of course when I worked for Montford uh, we sold product all over the world so the Foreign Relations Committee was a, uh, a natural for me to be on and I enjoyed it a great deal and we did lots of legislation when you first entered Washington, what was the most surprising thing for you? You know, I suppose uh, how lazy Congress is uh, <laughs> more than anything. In the state legislature, we uh, we were in session all year long, but we met every day. Uh, and we started eight and we'd end at five and you were there for it. Uh, when you go to Congress, almost nothing happens on Mondays or Fridays, um, and oftentimes during the week, um, they may not do a full schedule. Um, in addition, um, the schedule um, in both the House and the Senate, they schedule committees while the floor action is going. In the state legislature, you have your floor action where you're voting on second and third reading. Uh, at a separate time from when the committees meet. So you could literally be at all the committee meetings and, and should be and be on the floor for all the deliberations. In Congress, they run the committee meetings at the same time same they have action. And that's why if, when you go and visit it, unless it's an unusual issue, very few people are on the floor listening to the debate. Now they might be, uh, uh, you know, they might be in committee meeting or they might be in their office and may have the television on watching the floor action, but uh, it's, it's much different than a state legislature that actually gets things done. Uh, they, they tend to only work three days a week and uh, uh, I, I sh should say they don't do some things on Mondays and Fridays, but not much. And uh, so I was shocked at, uh, at, at how uh, a little work gets done by Congress. That's crazy. Floor votes and committee meetings same time and also three days a week. You know, and, and that's why in the House they have, they have proxy voting. Uh, someone else cast your vote. Oh my. Um, which is a, a really a disaster for bipartisanship. Exactly, yeah. Because if you're not physically there to hear the arguments and the witnesses, it's very difficult to, uh, you know, to, to work out a consensus. In the state legislature, at least in Colorado, I'd say 95% of the legislation that passed was uh, was bipartisan. Uh, you know, people of good conscience in both parties sat down, and, and when you listen to all of the same witnesses, you end up 
figured out a solution usually that's that isn't a particularly partisan. Now it's more partisan now, but it's not anything like Washington. Mm-hmm. The, the, the proxy voting is just a disaster for the process. It sounds kind of crazy. Well, the leadership <laughs> likes it because they don't. You know, it's easy to control the vote when, when you cast people's vote for them. There's no way to negotiate or talk about it. Just it's a done deal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's one of the big reforms, I think, as I hope they'll do in Congress, is eliminate the proxy voting. And I think hopefully eliminate uh, the schedules where you're not able to physically be in the committee meetings, all the committee meetings. I know that in the past, at least from my perspective, partisanship and polarization was a little more toned down. What has changed and why do you think it has? It has changed. <clears throat> There's no question that in the legislatures and Congress, it's much more partisan than it used to be. Uh, <clears throat> some of that, not all of it, but some of it is that the parties have become more philosophically aligned. So uh, a number of the, of the, the more liberal Republicans have become Democrats, uh, and a number of the conservative or moderate uh, Democrats have become Republicans. Uh, so, for example, uh, Jim Jeffers from Vermont uh, switched from Republican to Independent. Uh, ben Campbell, who was a Democrat uh, from Colorado, ended up switching to become a Republican. And Phil Graham, who had been a Democrat in Texas, uh, switched and became a Republican. To, uh, Shelby, Senator Shelby from Alabama. Uh, had been a Democrat switched mm-hmm. became a Republican. So the parties are philosophically uh, more consistent than they were in the past. Uh, and I think a second thing has been uh, the, the explosion of money coming into politics. The Democrat, the unions, for example, in the Democratic Party have much more control over the party in terms of its voting now because they. Uh, control or contribute so much of the money that comes to Democrats. Um, and that's made them much more cohesive. And, and I think the third thing is Republicans have kind of reacted. Uh, I think it's unfortunate that they have, but uh, for years, Republican nominees would, would not necessarily get all the Republican support for the Supreme Court, but get most of it. And, and uh, yeah, but not all of them. And when there was a Democrat up, most Republicans would vote for him if, if they were well qualified. Uh, I voted for all the Democratic nominees to the courts. Uh, I think, with almost no exceptions in the six years I was in the Senate, that were qualified. I, I mean, there were almost no Democrats that I voted against. Uh, the Democrats, though, became very partisan, I think partially because of the union pressure and, and uh, other factors. And then eventually Republicans said, well, look, if you're going to vote against all Republicans, we'll vote against Democrats. And so while you'll still see some Republicans vote for the Democrats, uh, nominees, uh, it's not like it used to be. And so the partisanship is kind of the fact that one party was very partisan influenced the other party to become more partisan. 
for the past couple of years, Supreme Court nominees and also judges in general. I don't think it's been done right. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and all those people from that time, they were voted on almost 90 senators, right? Really bipartisan. But now I think that lots of the nominees are very qualified and people are just voting them down just because of different judicial philosophies. Yeah, this, this last woman who went on the court superbly qualified. Yes, very. She barely got on. Uh, now, I think part of that is just the courts have become very political. Uh, and uh, hopefully that will change back and they'll become more objective and, and independent. But uh, I think that's been all part of the, the partisanship that's developed. I read an article a couple of days ago about the politicization of the courts, and it kind of compared the difference between the courts being political and the courts being partisan. Political meaning it's influenced by politics as the justices are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And partisan, they're voting based off of party politics and stuff like that. So political, partisan. Well, I, I just think Trump's kind of an outlier from my point of view, thank God. Uh, you know, he obviously was mistaken in that. Uh, it's an interesting question. I would say that judges have been have been more and more philosophically different, consistent. So maybe that's been influenced by politics, not partisanship. But thankfully. None of the, the three judges that uh, that Trump appointed uh, chose to uh, become supportive of his position on that. Um, you know, part of it is an interesting philosophical question. Um, Thomas Jefferson had recommended that we have a constitutional convention every twenty years. Uh, obviously, that's a provision that was not adopted in the constitutional convention. Um, but in my mind, it probably should have been. Uh, what's happened is uh, because it's difficult to amend the Constitution, obviously we've done a number of times, but it's very difficult to get done. The judges have, uh, have been uh, inclined over the years, mostly Democrats, but not always Democrats. Uh, in fact, the, the Republicans in, in participated in a significant way as well to update, not doing a good job of defending what they did, but in their words, update the Constitution. Uh, let me give you an example. The, the ruling that came down uh, some years ago that said one person, one vote, and uh, forced state legislatures to change their districts uh, so that they were all within one percent or a fraction of one percent uh, the same uh, in, in my mind that was a, uh, a good policy yeah uh, but to say that the court ruled on it uh, saying it was unconstitutional well it's just silly to claim the framers of the constitution uh, didn't uh, okay legislative districts being of different sizes that's absurd every 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 state in the nation when this nation was formed um, uh, 
that had variants usually for the upper body. Um, the, the U.S. Senate was based uh, on geography, not population. To say the Constitution says you're, you're limited to one man, one vote in terms of districts uh, is clearly not unconstitutional. So there's an example, folks might disagree of how I think of the issue, but there's an example where the result was good uh, and logical, but uh, clearly not in line with the Constitution. And so people began to think of using the, the courts as a way of updating the Constitution, so to speak, uh, or make it political, uh, to use the opponent's uh, viewpoint on it. But I think it all comes from the fact that it's difficult to amend the Constitution. Look at the abortion rulings. Um, to say that the that mass added by trimesters uh, is kind of silly. Uh, they've defended the, the Roe v. Wade decision as uh, saying it was within the penumbra of the Constitution. Well, it clearly wasn't, isn't. But is what they came up with pretty good policy? Uh, it depends, I guess, on your point of view. I happen to be pro-choice, so I don't think the impact of Roe v. Wade was bad. I think it would have been a good law. Uh, but to say it's uh, in the Constitution, it's, you, it's tough to say that with a straight face. Uh, so I, I think all of it comes back to the fact that it, it's it's too tough to, def, to amend the Constitution. And uh, we probably should have done what Jefferson suggested and have a convention every 20 years. Uh, obviously, we're not going to do that, but uh, but I think it's at the root of, of why you have uh, this controversy over the Constitution. I didn't learn about Jefferson's proposal for 20 years, but I think that would solve a lot of our problems. It'd be interesting. I, you know, it, uh, I, I don't think it's anything that could pass now, but, but it would be intriguing. Fun idea, yes. There's been, on the liberal side of the debate, Justice Breyer's whether he should step down or retire as a justice because the court is currently six to three or like five to four depending on how you view justice roberts so what is your perspective should he be influenced by the current political situation or regarding the courts's divide about whether he should retire you know it, it was a question that ginsburg faced and the, the democrats literally went to ginsburg and pleaded with her to retire when obama could replace appoint a replacement and uh and obviously she chose not to do that my own thought, and that's basically what Breyer's looking at, I think, at this point. Uh, Breyer probably is in better health than Ginsburg was, and Breyer may well last. Uh, if Republicans ever recapture the presidency, Breyer may last through that. The way the Constitution set up is that he, the person has no obligation to do that. And uh, actually, Republicans have... Uh, uh, have tended to not time their departure uh, with the president, with who was president. Um, well, Democrats often have, uh, and uh, obviously Ginsburg's the exception to that. Um, if you go forward, 
my own sense is you ought to have a, not necessarily term limits for judges, but I would think there's a point at which as you get older, your, your faculties diminish. Uh, it varies with people. Some people lose it when they're 50 years old and some at 90 years old, but, but all of them are decline at some point. Uh, I don't know if you need anything radical in that area, but I, I would favor something that has you retired uh, at age 90 or before just to address the problem. I don't think you ought to serve forever on the court. Uh, being independent obviously is a good idea, so you probably would have a different age requirement than what we have for other jobs. Uh, and that ability to stay a long time period if you want to is, is part of their independence. But I do think you need to put some sort of limit on, on how old, uh, how old you can be to serve on the court. Uh, at this point, obviously, uh, the majority of people don't agree. After your time in the Senate, you went on to go into academia. So just why did you go into academia and are you still in teaching and what do you love about it? When you leave the Senate, you uh, get your body's warm and, and you're not uh, too too senile. Why, uh, why you have lots of uh, wonderful opportunities that are offered to you, including lobbying. Uh, and I'd say about 90% of the people who uh, are in the Senate or maybe 95% or who served uh, a long period of time in the House all stay in Washington, draw very large salaries as lobbyists. That always seemed to me to be wrong, that you shouldn't take advantage of the time you serve. The honor of serving in Congress is something that was not meant to be like that. So I, I had a number of job offers that were seven figures and above, and, uh, but decided to, to take the, the lowest offer I had, which was uh, to teach at a university here in Colorado. Uh, I did because I thought that would be a lot of fun to do, very interesting, and uh, of value, and not play off on uh, having served in Congress. So that was great fun, and then of course a year after that, I got an offer to, to become president of a university, which I took, and have served a number of universities since. I really respect your decision. You know, the reality is, didn't grow up having money and uh, you've developed some pretty good habits <laughs> not yeah. it. and obviously you, you have enough uh, resources to put food on the table so uh, the difference in money doesn't make a big difference in your life doing something important does fantastic I'm gonna end on one question I know that you're an avid book reader so what book are you currently reading and why do you like it and what book recommendations do you have that's an interesting question. I, I'm currently reading Josephus's book. It's a, a, obviously a translation of his book, but Josephus was a, a rabbi and then became a general in the uh, Jewish army, led uh, part of the army in the war with uh, Rome. He lived in a time period shortly after uh, Christ had passed away. He had access he writes the history of the Jewish people and he writes a history of the war with Rome and uh, he had uh, access to the transcripts and the manuscripts that were in the Jewish temple before the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. It's a fascinating book because it's uh, much more detailed than the Torah or the Old Testament. 
with it, and it's fascinating to, to, to read about somebody who fought war against Rome as well. He, I think his proper name was a little broader because Josephus was obviously his Jewish name and uh, picked up the, the name of uh, Flavius, I think it is, is his last name, but he, he became a prisoner of war and uh, he became a scribe and uh, was in the employee of, of the emperor of Rome for a number of years. So the translation of Josephus' war with uh, Rome is what I'm reading. Wow, that is so cool. Well, thank you so much, Senator Brown, for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Your insight is just fabulous. Good to talk to you. Take care. You too. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, this concludes this episode with Senator Hank Brown. Be sure to check out other episodes like this with other U.S. officials and follow Redefine Politics on Instagram. We'll be having exclusive content that gives you more behind-the-scenes look at Washington, D.C. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at redefinepolitics at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.